our text is kind of going back a little bit to Luke 17. Hear God's word to us from Luke 17, verses 20 through 37. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in, your, is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. For they will say to you, look there, or look here, do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking, marrying and being given in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise... Just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking and buying and selling and planting and building. But on the day when, the Lot, when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day of the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken, the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken, and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? And he said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. The word of the Lord. Lord, we ask that you would uh, be our teacher this morning. Help us to grapple with the awesome and sobering reality of your coming kingdom. Help us to understand what it means to live faithfully now in the present um, and to see the kingdom in our midst. So we pray all this in Jesus' name. So one of the characteristics of uh, Christianity and Judaism compared to other world religions, is their sense of orientation towards history. Um, they are historical religions in multiple senses, but in the, perhaps the most important sense, they're historical in that um, history is part of um, the spirituality of the Christian faith and the Jewish faith. Uh, both hold that God acts within time, and that God is directing all of history towards its final and ultimate uh, fulfillment and conclusion. And for the Jews, uh, especially leading up into Jesus' time, um, the arrival of the kingdom of God was really uh, one and the same as the fulfillment and the end of history. When the kingdom of God arrives, that's when history reaches its climax. So people are getting very excited when Jesus is, comes and he begins to announce the kingdom in people's midst. Um, has the kingdom finally arrived? History has come to its end. And so this is why uh, so many people ask Jesus in the Gospels, well, when, when is the kingdom coming, right? And 
here's another uh, instance of that, of, of people asking, well, when exactly is the kingdom going to come? You've been talking about it, so when, when, when will it arrive? And what's fascinating about Jesus' uh, response to this question, which comes from the Pharisees, is that he gives us two different answers. He says, well, the kingdom is here already. It's in your midst. But then he'll also say, well, the kingdom is yet to come, as he ta- talks to his disciples. Um, to the Pharisees, it's in your midst already. Can't you see it? But to his disciples, he complicates things, and he begins to talk about, he says this, the days that are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man. That's his earthly ministry. And you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will be the Son of Man be in his day. So the Son of Man um, reference here is a reference to the arrival of the kingdom, uh, the kingdom of God. And, and it's really the, the Son of Man as a title that Jesus uses of himself goes back to the book of Daniel. And in the book of Daniel, there's this, this picture in Daniel 7 of the Son of Man, who is this glorified figure riding on a cloud up into heaven to be seated uh, next to the Ancient of Days. And, and, and in that scene, there is a, there's a verse which is very important um, for the gospel writers. And to him, that's the kingdom, the, the Son of Man, to him was given a dominion and glory and a kingdom, an everlasting dominion. And all peoples and nations and language shall serve him and they shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. So the, the Son of Man imagery and language that Jesus used here is a reference to the kingdom. And he wants his disciples to know, so be assured of this. Don't listen to all those who are trying to predict and prognosticate you know, when this, this glorious kingdom is going to come. You'll know it when it comes. <laughs> It'll be like lightning in the sky. There'll be no doubt about who I am and that the kingdom is present. So the question, though, for us is, how do we make sense of what Jesus says here? So the kingdom's already, but the kingdom's not yet, right? It's partially here, but it's not fully here, right? So what is, what is it? Is it here or is it not here? Well, of course, it's both. It's both. They're true. The kingdom is here. It is here. It has already broken in, partially, but yet it's still to come. And um, this is uh, kind of the unique orientation of the Christian in history. Um, And some have called this uh, posture towards the kingdom of God or the future as the already and the not yet, right? Um, The kingdom is already, but it's not yet. It's not completely fulfilled. It's still coming. And this already not yet corresponds to the two comings of Jesus, right? His first coming and his second coming. With the first coming of Jesus, the kingdom of God really does break into history, Really and truly it does. Um, when John the Baptist was the first, John the Baptist is the first one to announce the kingdom of God and to prepare people for the coming of Jesus. And John's imprisoned. And he's starting to question whether he, he, uh, he got it right. I mean, if I'm in prison, how has the kingdom have come, right? Because again, his understanding of the kingdom wasn't exactly aligned with Jesus. So he sends his disciples uh, to talk to, to inquire of Jesus, are you the one? Has the kingdom really come with you? And Jesus' response is this. Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news for them. Preach to them. Of course, the kingdom has come. 
but what neither John the Baptist nor even Jesus' disciples could really grasp at this point in time is that, as Jesus says, the Son of Man must suffer and be rejected by this generation. That the Son of Man would be that he would be resurrected, that he would ascend into heaven, and he would remain there for a time, which would then uh, necessitate a second coming. And that's what Jesus is beginning to instruct his disciples about here. Now, it's this already and not yet kind of tension and spirituality that we observe in the season of Advent. Advent means coming, it means arrival, and uh, we Focus not just on Jesus' first coming, meek and mild as an infant child. We also, as we reflect and remember Jesus' first coming, we anticipate and ready ourselves for his second coming. And so there's a kind of a dual focus, right? Jesus has entered history truly and, and really and is at work in our midst now in his kingdom. And yet, he is yet to come to complete the work of his first coming. And so Advent is one of the ways we live in that tension. And so, um, you know, Advent's next week, but I'm sort of trying to get you guys ready a little bit. Now, living in the already, not yet, is kind of like wearing bifocal glasses. These aren't bifocals, they're progressives, but it's the same idea. Um, a bifocal lens is a lens that has two parts that have different focal lengths, right? So... Uh, usually the bottom part of the lens is for seeing that are up close, like seeing this text right here. And then uh, the upper lens is for seeing things in the distance, right? And um, if you want to think about what it means to have that already not, spir not yet spirituality, it's, it's being able to have like a bifocal lens of seeing the kingdom, the kingdom that's right in front of our faces, but also that kingdom that is yet to come. You need both lenses. And that's what Jesus does, I think, in this text, is he, he instructs us in two ways of seeing um, his, his kingdom, which is to come. So the problem with the Pharisees is that they're farsighted. They're farsighted. They couldn't see the kingdom that was right in front of them. That's what it means to be farsighted. It's not that you can't see distance. But, but the problem with the Pharisees, of course, it's not like they were just farsighted. They're also nearsighted. I mean, Jesus actually accuses them of just being spiritually blind altogether, the blind leading the blind. But here the focus is a problem of farsightedness. The kingdom of God is right in front of them, and they can't see it. It's in your midst. The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, says Jesus, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Now, Jesus uses an a interesting verb here. Uh, it can't be observed. It's actually... Uh, a, a rare verb, it's, it's almost scientific. It can't be observed. You can't calculate it. You know, if we were to put it into our own vernacular today, it's like you can't measure it mathematically or scientifically. You can't, you can't you know, kind of predict how it is. There's no model uh, that you can look at. The kingdom of God is actually already among you. I know you're religious experts. Everybody's going to go to you to tell us when the kingdom is coming. But it's actually among you already, and it's within reach, but you need humble faith to see it. Uh, the story that, right, that precedes our, our story is um, a story of Jesus healing ten lepers. He heals ten lepers, um, 
But of the ten, only one of the lepers, who actually is a Samaritan, a foreigner, comes to Jesus after the healing and gives praise to God for the healing. And Jesus responds this way. He says, where are the ten? We're not ten cleansed. Where are the nine? For no one found, was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And then he said to him, rise and go your way, for your faith has made you well. Only one of the healed lepers perceived the kingdom of God in their midst, even though they were all healed. And the Pharisees are very similar, right? They see Jesus doing miracles. They see Jesus uh, casting out demons. And yet, they can't see the kingdom. They couldn't see the presence of the kingdom in the midst of Jesus' earthly ministry. What were they looking for? Why couldn't they see it? What would authenticate Jesus' announcement of the kingdom? Um, I think they were looking for more extraordinary examples of Jesus' political and military might. It kind of, you might think of it as a kind of Marvel Avengers movie version of the kingdom of God. It's like, Jesus, come on. You know, use your mind to, to annihilate some Romans. Levitate a little bit. You know, maybe throw some lightning bolts out of your eyes. Show us who you really are. Do something impressive. And Jesus, he does. He does real miracles, extraordinary things that cannot be explained. And yet, as signs of his power and glory, the, the Pharisees and the unbelieving crowds could not accept them. I mean, the thing is this, is when you look at the miracles of Jesus' ministry, they're, they are extraordinary, but they're, they're, they're very personal. They're very um, domestic, almost, and pastoral. They, they change not so much like the big structures of politics and society, uh, but what they do is they change family lives. They change communities. They change people's personal lives. You know, he's not mowing down legions of Roman soldiers. He's healing, you know, ten lepers. He's not, like, going to battle against Caesar. He's casting demons out of little boys that are being thrown into the fighter. He's not, you know, you know, whining and dining with the rich and the famous. He's eating with tax collectors and socially questionable people. He's teaching the people. He's feeding the people. He's offering forgiveness of sins to any who would receive it. He's preaching words of hope to the poor. And so when Jesus says that the kingdom of God is in your midst, these are the things he has in mind. It's the exact same things that he announced that we reflected on at the start of his ministry in Luke 4, where he quotes from Isaiah. And he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has, he has anointed me to proclaim to you the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is Jesus' whole ministry, right? It's the program of his ministry. It is the kingdom of God breaking in. And it is miraculous, but it's easy to overlook. It's easy because it doesn't have the, the awe of, you know, thunder and the flash of lightning. It's a kingdom in our midst in the ordinariness of life. And you need the eyes of faith to see it, to continue seeing it. So my question this morning is, can you see it? Do you see it? It's among you. It's in your midst right now. It's in the ordinary ministries of this church, of our every Sunday, day, our Sunday worship. It's among you as you meet 
week to week as community groups. It's among you as you, you know, drag your kids out of bed and try to get to church on time. It's among you as you deliver meals to one another when somebody has a baby or somebody is sick. It's among you as you pray for a family, friend, or somebody in your life who is struggling. It's among you as you share your faith with a friend or a colleague that doesn't know Jesus. It's among you as you serve at the rescue mission or the food pantry. It's among you and all the little things that are, become part of the routines of our life. Can you see it? Can you see it? The kingdom of God is not going to come um, in our midst that Jesus is talking about here like a Marvel movie kingdom. Um, it is present in the ordinary in the everyday in the faithfulness of quiet and faithful obedience. And it takes humble faith. It is present in all the brokenness and imperfections of our personal lives and our family lives and our communities. But it is real. And seeing it requires humble faith and trust in Jesus. So that's the first part of seeing Jesus and the kingdom in our midst. But Jesus then shifts, and he spends most of his time um, of instruction on seeing the kingdom that is far away, the kingdom which is not yet and is still to come. And this kingdom requires a different lens, and it requires a different posture for seeing. Now, in addressing the disciples, Jesus shifts the conversation in really important ways from the popular and conventional ways that Jews of that time thought about the coming of the kingdom. The first thing he does is he speaks about the kingdom um, as the coming of the Son of Man. He doesn't actually use kingdom language in the latter part of this passage, but he's talking all about the kingdom. But the point is this, is that um, when the final coming of the kingdom is here, it will be inseparable from the glory of the Son of Man. You cannot separate the appearance of the Son of Man, and the coming of the kingdom. And when this kingdom comes, there will be no signs. That's the other thing. There will be no signs that precede it. It will not be announced ahead of time to give time for people to prepare. Um, it will just appear like lightning across the sky. And there will be no doubt about its presence and what it is. Jesus also challenges another popular expression expectation around the coming of the kingdom. When the Son of Man comes, it will not be good news for everyone in Israel. <laughs> when, the, when, the, when the Son of Man comes, it will not be good news for everyone in Israel. It will not be a time of jubilation for all. It will be good news for those who have responded positively with faith to Jesus' first coming. It will be good news for those who have placed their faith and trust in Him. It will not be good news for those who have failed to grasp his presence and have rejected the kingdom of his first coming. I tell you, as this is Jesus, I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed, one will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together, one will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, where, Lord? And he said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. And what, Jesus, what is Jesus talking about here? He's talking about the final judgment. They are those who have faith and responded to God's kingdom 
those who are left, right? The ones who are left behind, opposite of the popular imagination, are actually those who have withstood the judgment, those who are faithful. They continue on, and those who are taken are those who do not survive, those who are not ready, those who did not respond to Jesus of Nazareth will not survive the Son of Man when he comes in his glory. Now, the context of Jesus' teaching about the nature of his second coming is here applied especially to his own disciples. Um, he will later on in the gospel uh, talk about the end of the world in relationship to the, the Pharisees and the non-believing crowds. But here he's really focused on his disciples internalizing the, his imminent return and what that means for how they think about what it means to follow him. He wants them to really grasp the not yet dimension of, of the kingdom and how it shapes their behavior in life in the present. And so um, when we think about it, coming back to that kind of bifocal lens, eyeglass lens sort of analogy, um, or metaphor rather, um, what, what, are, what is that lens that we need to not be nearsighted? In other words, to see the, the kingdom that is off, that is coming. What, what is that posture? And so I, wanna, I just want to reflect and close on three, three things to keep us from becoming spiritually nearsighted, right? Right? Uh, Urgency, attentiveness, and detachment. Those are the three themes, I think, that come out in this text. Urgency, attentiveness, and detachment. Um, we need to live with a sense of urgency about the kingdom. The kingdom can come at any moment. It could come right now. And we need to be ready, right? We need to be ready. Uh, there won't be any warning signs. No time ahead to prepare. And the way we're ready is we pay attention to the kingdom now, right? That's the best way. There's no, this is where maybe the analogy is more of a progressive lens than a bifocal lens, right? Because there's more of a seam. You know, when you're attending to the kingdom in our midst, you're going to be able to attend to the kingdom that is to come. So it's to live with a sense of urgency, which is we need to proclaim the good news of the kingdom to our friends, to our families, to our neighbors that do not know Jesus. We need to continue carrying on Jesus' ministry of healing, his ministry of forgiveness, his ministry of setting free. We need to live with a sense of his imminent return of his first coming, carrying on his ministry. The urgency is that judgment is coming upon the world even though the world is just kind of doing its thing, business as usual. I mean, just listen to the words of Jesus here. They are un, unambiguous. <laughs> just as in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking and buying and selling and planning and building, but on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. This is Jesus. <laughs> this is Jesus talking. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Judgment is coming. No preliminary warnings will be given. People need to respond now. We need to live with a sense of urgency of this reality. We need to call people into the kingdom. Just as Noah was calling people into the ark, 
It's the same thing. We're calling people to enter the kingdom now by faith. Because when he comes in the second time, it will be too late. So urgency, that is the first. Attentiveness is uh, closely related to the idea of urgency. What is the opposite of attentiveness? Uh, the opposite is indifference, um, a kind of lack, lackadaisicalness, a casualness about life, a distracted, being just distracted and you know, running here and there and not really attending to the things that matter because you think you have all the time in the world. Attentiveness is to have a kind of a wartime mentality. Imagine what it's like to be a Ukrainian citizen right now. No matter where you're at in the Ukraine, there's just a sense of urgency and attentiveness, right? A bomb could drop at any point. You have to be ready. You have to be mobilized to help your neighbors or friends or to fight for your country. This is precisely what Jesus and the apostles teach us. Actually, Peter Peter actually deeply internalized Jesus' teaching on this point in his letter. He says, arm yourselves. Arm yourselves with the same attitude that Jesus had when he suffered. And when he says arm yourself, what he's trying to say is this, is to understand that there's this great struggle that underway. Despite the victories that Jesus gained in his first battle, there's still fighting. We're still, we're still locked in battle. So don't fall asleep on the front line. Don't forget there's a war happening Develop a wartime mentality. And friends, a wartime mentality is not to be belligerent and aggressive. Um, a wartime mentality is to live with a sense of deep moral purpose, to live with a sense of attentiveness and preparedness. I mean, it's life and death. <laughs> it's life and death. I mean, it's, life is not a joke. We don't have as much time as we think. I mean, things matter. And so Peter will say, you know, prepare your minds for action, be sober-minded, the end of all things is at hand, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers, be sober-minded and watchful for your adversary the devil prowls around like a lion, seeking someone to devour. We need to live with a sense of attentiveness to the times we live in, the in-between times, which is a spiritual war. So, uh, urgency, attentiveness, and then finally, a sense of detachment. Jesus wants us to live with a sense of detachment from the things of this world. That's because the things of this life can easily become a snare to our souls in the same way they were a snare to Lot's wife or a snare to the rich young ruler who turned away when Jesus asked him to sell his possessions. Jesus says, on that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house, not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. <clears throat> On Friday, I had an opportunity to um, address a room full of Catholic seminarians at Sacred Heart University, or seminary, rather. And I was talking to them about mission of the church in a secular age and what it means for us to recover our Catholicity. And one of the things that I talked about that it's important for us to do as a church in our age is to call people to costly discipleship. I think the temptation for us in a world in which 
you know, seems to be going the opposite direction, is to try to make things easy, um, to make it approachable. And I think actually this is the exact last thing, because I think our culture and our world is dying of despair and a lack of meaning in their life. And the question in life is not, what do you have to live for? The question, the really true question in life is, what do you have to die for? What do you have to die for? See, you can live for a lot of different things, and people will find that, but what is worth dying for? The only thing worth dying for is the kingdom. The only thing worth dying for is following Jesus. And I think that's hard for us, because we're trying to always have both. Jesus warns us, come follow me, right? He's not anti-world. Jesus is not anti-world. He's not against eating or drinking or marrying or working, but he warns us not to become overly attached to these things, to become so busied with our life that we have no time for the kingdom. We're just too busy. We're too busy, but what happens is we'll become then like Lot's wife. When the announcement comes and it's ready to go, you hesitate. You hesitate. This is what Jesus means by detachment. See, the things of this world, the things of this world are passing. All of us, at, well, you know, whether Jesus comes back before we die, we will all face an apocalypse, and it will be our death. <laughs> That's when we will see the Son of Man in his glory if he doesn't come before them. Jesus' teaching on the second coming is extremely sobering. It was for me. As I wrestled with this text all week, I felt this weight and this heaviness. And I think the reason it, we avoid this topic is because it's so sobering and we don't want to talk about it. And nevertheless, the message of Jesus, I mean, this is not an isolated passage. It is in every single gospel and all the New Testament writers build on it and develop it. It's everywhere. Jesus wants us to internalize this as our understanding of what it means to follow him. And so the question is this for all of us, I think. If Jesus were to come tomorrow, would you be ready? Would you be ready? Is your life currently reflect the priorities of him, his imminent return? Now, the good news is that he has not yet come. <laughs> Full of glory. He has not yet come. He is present right now. Not as the glorious Son of Man, but he is present now as the crucified Son of Man. He is present as the one who had to suffer and was rejected by this generation. And his kingdom is present. And he suffered for the sake of our salvation. And he gains for us as rebels and insurrectionists and sinners a kingdom, the kingdom of the Father. And this kingdom is open access. It is open to us now. It is full of grace and mercy. And all you have to do to receive it is receive it with humble faith as one who is poor in spirit. Dear friends, enter this kingdom now. Jesus invites you. Let's pray. Lord, these are weighty words for us, and um, we do pray that you would give us the vision, the vision to see your kingdom up close and the vision to see your kingdom to come and to have the courage and the resolve and the grace we need in order to align our lives with that reality. We give you thanks that you are in our midst now and that the delay of your coming is really 
an extension of your grace and your mercy to this world. And so we pray, Lord, that we would respond to that grace and mercy in our lives and call others to it as well. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Jesus, uh, in the Gospel of Luke,